Just a real quick fair warning. We ramble a bit in this one, and we geek out on running a bit too. So if you're really just wanting to get a couple of key points, be sure to check the show notes on the website for timestamps. Now. Have you ever wondered why things are the way they are? Or found a product that's so different you just have to try it? And then become so hooked that you start telling all your friends about it? That's what happened to me with Ultra's shoes. And in this episode, their founder, Golden Harper, tells us how he came up with the very unique shape of their running shoes, why they're so different, why none of the big brands wanted to license the design even though he'd proven it under thousands of runners, and how he ended up launching the brand and rapidly bringing the product to market and getting acquired. That's a lot of ands, but there's a lot going on in this story. He's still very active in the company, and he has a lot of great lessons for anyone that thinks they have a better product. The podcast by Tyler Benedict that explores the startup stories and growth tactics of hundreds of entrepreneurs, plus his own tips and tricks learned over two decades of launching, running, and growing businesses, including BikeRumor.com, the world's largest and most popular cycling tech blog. If you're thinking of starting your own business, the Build Cycle will give you the tools and inspiration to do it right. Now, let's dive into this episode of The Build Cycle. Golden, you started out as owning a running shop where you were modifying your customers' shoes. And like at that point when you were doing that, and we'll dive into how and why and all that in a second, but did you ever think that this would turn into a big running shoe company and brand? Uh, well, I was at the running store itself, modifying shoes. Yeah. Um. I I did eventually along the way. I I kind of like fought it forever because initially um, I had just hoped that one of the major running shoe brands would uh, you know take the data we had that was so positive and and build shoes for us so we didn't have to do it ourselves. But eventually it just got to the point where uh, you know we had I basically had to do it myself. So. Um, so yeah, uh, yes and no, I guess, you know, no at first. And then eventually, you know, I knew it was powerful. I knew it would be huge, uh, whether it was, you know, somebody else making it or, or me making it. Um, I just didn't want to make it if I didn't have to. So, right. All right. Yeah. Well, well, let's back up then and talk about how you did this. So you, I mean, I'll let you tell the story, but basically you were uh, hacking people's shoes and, helping them correct, you know, pain or whatever issues they were having. But so tell us how you did that. So, you know, really it, it began, um, I studied running injuries and running technique in school. And uh, it all started because, you know, where the, the marketing is and where the science are, you know, I learned were two very different places. Everything I grew up learning working in my running store since age nine uh, was basically a load of crap for lack of, you know, better <laughs> explanation and that really frustrated me um that everything i'd been taught as a you know running store person by the running shoe companies was basically scientific garbage um and so uh as we looked at uh, running injury rates 
uh, I found that running injuries were actually just as high or higher actually um, then than they were before we had cushioning technologies or, or modern running shoes at all. So, you know, go back 50 years and, and running injuries are actually worse now. And that just made no sense to me. And so um, in college, I wanted to figure out, you know, why. And so with that kind of information, um, at, at my shop, coming back to my shop after graduating, um, we, these uh, uh, five fingers came available. You, you know the shoes I'm talking about, the Vibrams? Yes. <clears throat> so, um, and we were the first running store in the country to carry them, and, and we brought them in to uh, use for people to strengthen their feet, use a couple times a week on short runs, strengthen their feet, and work on their running technique. And uh, at the same time, uh, high-speed video became available to, you know, not super rich people. And uh, so high-speed video let us see things really clearly in slow motion. And so we started filming people wearing um, these five fingers and barefoot and track spikes. And then in the shoes, we were selling them. And what we found is that... um, you know, in five fingers and barefoot and in, you know, uh, track spikes or, or cross country flats, um, people all basically ran really similarly. But then when we filmed the same people a few minutes later in, you know, all the best selling shoes that we were selling them, uh, we found that they ran completely differently. You know, they, they had a tendency to land, uh, more with their toes up and their heel out, um, in front of their knee and land with a harsh heel strike landing, which they didn't do otherwise. And so, you know, after really looking at a lot of video and analyzing it a lot, the the only explanation is that the shoes were literally teaching people to run wrong. And so that's kind of how we got to to the place where um, we started looking at doing something about it. So why do you think the marketing for running shoes was what it was? Why was it wrong? Um, well, so the guys that I worked with um, from Nike and Adidas, both, um, actually all of them told me that they knew, so this would have been almost 10 years ago, so now almost 25 years ago, uh, they had done research independently at Nike and Adidas um, and they knew that shoes should be built, uh, from a functional standpoint to be level heel to forefoot and also to allow your toes to completely spread out. And, um, Adidas feet you wear was like Adidas's reaction to that initial research. If you remember the feet you wear shoes, um, but what ended up happening is by the time it made it through design and marketing and, and executive teams, you know, they managed to elevate the heel and crowd the toe box and then just um, basically uh, try and make the shoe look like a foot otherwise uh, by rounding the heel and and drawing toes around the uh, front part of the shoe and and doing some shaping. And um, so I think a lot of what we got to is uh, there's a certain design aesthetic, uh, a look basically that is is preferred. and also, you know, there were some logical fallacies. My, my guys from Nike said that when, you know, they first put uh, foam in a shoe, nobody had ever had foam in their shoes before. Shoes were just hard rubber previously. And Bowerman was trying to, you know, put these in racing shoes, and he was teaching his guys to 
uh, you know, get a longer stride. So they were actually reaching out and heel striking on purpose and it hurt their heels. And so Bowerman, uh, you know, they, they ended up getting these shoes that had foam in the heels and nobody had ever felt foam before. And they of course only put it in the heel because Bowerman wanted the shoes to be as light as possible. Um, and, um, you know, imagine you've never felt foam before in a shoe and you, and you put that on for the first time in your life, it's going to feel incredible. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, it's going to be this like revelation. Right. And, um, and since it was only in the heel, that was just kind of the, the, the formula at, at first. And then, you know, it got to where our, um, just a few years down the road, you know, they, they put it in basically, you know, across the board and, and the, the, the accepted formula both at the shoe factories and, and in every level of shoe manufacturing was that the foam would always be twice as thick in the heel as it was in the forefoot. So if you wanted, you know, a half an inch of forefoot cushioning, you would get an inch of heel cushioning. And that's just the spec that all shoes were built on. That's kind of default how things ended up getting made. And um, my guy from Nike, who was actually the head of the kitchen there and um, part of the advanced concepts team, he said, None of us did any research. It was just really comfortable um, to people because they'd never experienced foam. And it was extremely popular and it made Nike so much money that they didn't bother to research it. It was a huge moneymaker. And um, all the other shoe companies, because it was so successful for Nike, they, ju- they didn't do any research either. They just copied Nike and, and followed the market to, you know, to stay in business and make money. Yeah. And so I don't think it was malicious by any stretch of the imagination. I, I think at the time the, the reasoning was fairly sound, which was, um, you know, saying, okay, you have to get a longer stride to run faster. Therefore, you're going to reach out and hit on your heel, which we know all this is bogus now. And basically you get a longer stride because you're in better condition, you know, because you're, uh, you know, uh, a better athlete. And, uh, but, but this whole idea of get a longer stride and then, ow, my heel hurts. Okay, let's put some foam in there to make it not hurt so bad. Wow, that's really comfortable. Um, you know, that, that feels amazing. And you can kind of see how it just kind of spiraled. Uh, we got the same thing with pronation, you know, where we elevated the heels and all of a sudden it looks like everybody's ankles are turning in. So Nike invents a, uh, you know, a, a structure on the inside part of the shoe to to fix the problem that they created in the first place by raising the heel, which is honestly the best marketing in the history of <laughs> all time, creating a problem and then creating a, a product to fix the problem that you created in the right. first place. Well, Genius. and correct me if I'm wrong, but when you and I met last summer, I, I think part of the story you told was that when Bowerman first created this shoe shape was that, it was actually made for either his foot or somebody's foot who was abnormally shaped. And that's why we have that kind of pointed toe box. Is, is that correct? Yeah, um, that's, that's definitely part of it, especially from the Nike side. Um, Kenny Moore was uh, who Bowerman used for, and Ke- Kenny Moore was a great runner, and he was Bowerman's uh, last model, for lack of a better term. So Bowerman based the last off of Kenny Moore's foot. Kenny Moore had a... Um, a really excessive Morton's toe, meaning his second toe was a lot longer than his first. Um, and so it made, uh, you know, it made the shape of the Nike shoes be very pointy as a result. And so that's how we got to kind of our modern, um, you know, for lack of a better term, torpedo shaped rather than foot shaped running shoe. Right. 
So in the shop, you're seeing people with these problems and you're, you're testing it with uh, the, the five fingers and barefoot and stuff. At, at what point did you figure out that you could modify people's shoes or like what led you to want to try that? Uh, so really quick and modifying shoes was really normal at my house. My dad was always <laughs> messing with shoes. He, his, his shoes from when he won the 1984 St. George marathon, um, he drilled holes in the, in the heel of the shoe, all the cushioning in the back of the shoe. Um, because he said his knee would hurt less when he could make the back half of the shoe lighter weight, um, <laughs> and, and less cushy. And this is significant because my dad has no cartilage in his knee. He's bone on bone. So imagine a guy running a 222 marathon, winning the entire race, and he has no, no cartilage or cushioning in his knee. And um, so, so the modification thing was fairly normal around home. And we're sitting there watching the videos. And, and because um, my dad has no cartilage, he has a, he's very um, passionate about teaching how to teaching people how to protect their bodies when they run. And so whenever anybody comes into the store, he basically gives everybody a mini uh, technique lesson on how to protect their body and run efficiently. So as we're sitting here watching these videos of people running great in no shoes and great in track spikes and five fingers and then running terrible in the very shoes we were selling them, you know, his statement was, you know, I don't, I don't know if we're really helping here. Um, and this is really frustrating because the video here makes it look like, you know, I give everybody a, a lesson and, and teach them how to protect their bodies when they run. And then they, I sell them a pair of shoes that basically undoes everything I teach them every single time they go out the door. Mm-hmm. And it was at that point that I started looking at the video trying to figure out what was going on. And what happens in a traditional shoe is as the foot swings out in front of the body, um, rather than staying parallel with the ground, the heel actually tends to drop right as it gets out in front of the body. And, and then it tends to catch early out in front of the knee instead of swinging underneath the knee like it would normally naturally do. And so with that kind of information, I had a theory that maybe because the shoe is twice as heavy in the back as well as being twice as thick, that when the foot does swing out in front of the body, that fact that the shoe's a lot heavier in the back half kind of pulls that heel down and pops the toes up a little bit. And then because it's thicker, it causes the foot to catch earlier than it otherwise would. And so my thought was, well, you know, obviously, you know, five fingers and track spikes are great, but I'm training for a mountain 50 mile or 50 mile race. Um, those aren't going to do me any good in that kind of situation. There's got to be a way to, to still have cushioning um, and yet uh, not jack with the way people run. And so I took a pair of uh, pair of shoes home and you know, I said to my, I told my dad what I wanted to do. And he was like, okay, great. Yeah. Just 275 in the, you know, stick them in the toaster oven, 275, wait till the glue bubbles. And, uh, you know, again, it sounds so weird, but it, around ha- the house, it was fairly normal enough that my mom, you know, kind of groans and is like, oh gosh, here we go again. Um, but, uh, so I do this. I stick these shoes and I actually leave them in a little long, melt the laces a bit and, and some of the TPU <laughs> on the upper. Um, and, and they're hideous, but I'm able to, to pull the rubber off and pull the foam out. And I put some, uh, some Spenco foam in and, uh, which is flat and level and weight balanced. And then, and then glue the rubber outsole back on and go for a run. And for me, for the first time in my life, I'm running in a, you know, cushy, supportive, you know, training shoe 
Um, but uh, for the first time in my life, I don't feel like I'm fighting my shoe. You know, I, I don't have this feeling like, okay, I'm trying to run the way I would run barefoot. Um, but I don't have the shoe fighting me anymore. And it was a, just kind of a revelation for me. And, uh, so, uh, that's kind of how we, you know, how I got the first pair of shoes done. And then I took them and, and tested them on, on my staff. And, you know, we had about 25 people working for us at the time and 24 out of 25 loved it. So I thought that's, that's pretty good numbers. Um, and I was work. I started working with a local shoemaker who was a like a third generation shoemaker, certified podorthist. And uh, I kind of explained to him what I was doing and why I wanted to do it. And he looked at me and he's kind of looking at the shoe back and forth. And he just gives me this kind of stern look. And he's like, "Well, as a certified podorthist and multi generational shoemaker, sure makes a lot of sense." <laughs> And I was like, okay, you know, kind of relieved, right? And so he starts modifying shoes for us, and we we start modifying basically everything in the store, but mostly our best-selling models, and um, to uh, kind of test on our staff. And then we got to a point where it was like, okay, what now? You know, it's kind of irresponsible to you know beta test on customers. You know, you're not just going to go hack up shoes and sell them to random, you know people uh but i had uh, a guy come in that was uh kind of desperate he tried everything and every running store has a handful of these people that they've tried the most cushioned shoe tried the most supportive shoe they've done the insoles and orthotics they've been to physical therapy you know it, it doesn't matter their knee still hurts you know and this guy sees what i'm wearing he's like well you know, I know we've kind of tried everything, but what do you have on there? Because they're hideous, right? Like they've been all hacked up. And and uh, I was like, well, you know, we've been we've been modifying these shoes, and on the video, they they appear to make you run better, um, which in in theory would you know pull a lot of pressure off your your joints and and help you to be more efficient. And, and he's like, well, why haven't you let me try them? I'm like, because they're hacked up, like <laughs> you know, modified shoes they're not you know anything real for lack of a better term and he's like well let me try them so this guy puts these shoes on these hacked up shoes and he he goes and runs outside and disappears for a while and he finally comes back in the door and and he looks at me he's like i'll take them and i'm like they're not for sale um and you know i, I explained to you these are these are not real shoes they've they've been you know messed with and he's like well i can tell they make me run uh, you know, run differently, and I think it might help. And I'm, I'm pretty desperate, so can I please buy them? Um, so long story short, sell sell the guy these shoes and kind of get a commitment from him that he'll come back and tell me what happened in in four to six weeks, and uh, you know whether he got injured worse, or you know something else got hurt, or if things got better, or regardless of what happened, that we just had an agreement that he would let me know. And uh, a couple weeks later, another guy came in and he, he was like, all right, who sold my friend a pair of hacked up shoes? <laughs> and I'm sitting here like, I knew it. I knew I shouldn't have like caved to this guy. And uh, I was like, you know, kind of sheepishly like, yeah, that was me. And he's like, well, heck, sell me a pair too. Because I've known Joe forever and his knees always hurt. They're not as bad anymore. So hook me up. <laughs> so, nice. 
this thing basically spiraled out of control and I'll, I'll spare you the details but we ended up selling um about a thousand pair of hacked up modified um shoes uh which uh with the help of the shoemaker uh we we got a catchy term which was zero drop uh which meant that the the heel no longer dropped down to the forefoot they were level um, from heel to forefoot and uh the, you know the cushioning of the shoe and so uh luckily we started uh um, getting data from everybody who was buying these shoes. And we were, again, basically taking our best-selling shoes, we'd take them into the shoemaker, and he'd go in and he'd, he'd cut um, from the heel into where the shoe stopped uh, dropping down to the forefoot. And then he would sand out the, the drop or the you know elevation to the heel, and then he'd measure it all out to make sure it was level. And then he'd glue it back together and try and make it as pretty as possible. And uh, so we basically did this with our best sellers and, and, um, and basically it kind of went from one injured runner to another where it was like, you know, from this initial guy to his friend, to his friends, to his friends and, and kind of out from there where, um, you know, the vast majority of these were sold kind of word of mouth. Um, as you know, I got these shoes, they're kind of, you know, they've been, you know, there's a modification done over at the shoemaker. They make me run better um, and make me run more efficiently, or they help. And as a result, my you know shin splints or knees or lower back or or whatever it happened to be doesn't hurt as bad. And luckily, we started uh, sending surveys out really early on, uh, like a t- full page, 25 question survey. What hurts more? What hurts less? Um, you know, do you land differently? Uh, wear more, wear less, what muscles get used, do you get sore in a different place, et cetera, et cetera. And we actually paid people um, gift certificates to uh, bring these surveys back after six weeks. So we had tons of good data. Um, and so after a year and about a thousand pair of these shoes, we had all this data. And that's that's when I basically took the data and started presenting it to the shoe companies in hopes that they would uh, build a pair of these shoes. So now all, all of that feedback, was that mostly just local area customers then? Mm-hmm. Yeah, those, those were mostly customers from my store. Um, and, uh, you know, we had a lot of, uh, you know, we had a fair number of people, you know, come in from out of town and even out of state um, that, that found out about this. And, and we were, uh, at times shipping these uh, modified zero drop shoes out around the country as well um, as a result just because of just because word got out it's pretty interesting now how did you how much did you charge to modify the shoes so um, basically what we would do is we would keep a uh, um, a, a modified pair at the store and then we would uh, after we got smart, we had the customers take a fresh pair or an unmodified pair to the shoemaker themselves, or we'd take them, we'd take it and get it done and bring it back. And it was between twenty and fifty dollars, depending on the the person or on the shoe. Usually, if we did a simple modification, it was about twenty. So the majority of them were done that way. So was it then? It wasn't necessarily like a a money making enterprise for the store it was just you know i'll sell you the shoes then here's what you can get done to them if you want yeah no in fact the store actually made less money as a result because a lot of times (laughs) because the shoes costed because it costed more to modify the shoes a lot of times we would offset that cost because we we knew it would help or it was helping the customer um 
And so we'd offset the cost by lowering the initial price of the shoe a little bit so that when they went and modified it, it wasn't, you know, a ton more expensive than it otherwise would have been to begin with. Right. So, so, so at yeah. That, at that point, it had to have been, you had to have been thinking, all right, we've got to do something more of this because you can't keep losing revenue just to help <laughs> your customers, right? So you, you, how did those, well, what was the impetus or the, what's the word, uh, start of the idea that, hey, we need to go get somebody to make these for us? And it was it like, all right, I'm going to go to Nike or Adidas or whatever and have them make just, hey, you know, like, here's a good idea. Please make this. Or was it like, hey, can you make some shoes specifically for us? Um, a little of both. Uh, basically, you know, um, my dad had worked for Nike and then uh, obviously, you know, we were one of the biggest running stores in the in the Rocky Mountain region. Um, we had really good connections to basically all the shoe companies. Um, and um, my dad had also worked for Saucony. And, and uh, New Balance was really, at the time, really kind of on the cutting edge of just trying new and crazy stuff, um, which is very, you know, kind of on New Balance, but that was the case at the time. Um, and so we actually went and just took the data. We just took all these surveys and we're like, look, when we get people, so basically we were selling people these shoes like a, a size, size and a half too big as well, especially if they had any foot problems. And we were not lacing the bottom three lace holes of the shoe, so the, the toes were kind of lost in space out there. Um, and we basically took the data to the shoe companies and said, hey, you know, when we, when we do this, we get people's toes to totally spread out and we lower the heel and make it level with the forefoot, just like you are when you get out of bed every morning. Um, just like you are every time you walk around without shoes on, um, but still have cushioning in the shoe. When you do that, um, these are the things that the data says get better. And that was mainly plantar fascia issues, uh, shin splints, um, IT bend, uh, patellar tendonitis, runner's knee, and lower back issues. Those were the things we saw just overwhelming success with. Um, and so we said, you know, we want to be able to sell these at our store and we don't want to be, you know, modifying shoes. So w will you please make them? And I was really surprised how swift and how negative the response was. Um, and again, I don't, I don't think it was necessarily malicious, but the answer was usually like, well, you know, especially with some of the bigger companies, it was like, well, all the cool cushioning technologies in the heel guys, you know? Um, and you know, you kind of think that over for a minute and you're like, okay, yeah, they, they, they basically want people to land out in front of their body on, on their heels so that they need that cool cushioning technology. And I'm kind of like, but you know, what about runners? We're like trying to help people not get injured. And the data here says that, you know, we see significant improvements. Um, and then the other answer was always like, well, you know, that's great and all, but if we did that, we'd kind of have to admit that everything we've been doing for the last 30 years is like, you know, maybe not quite so right. And that's kind of a, that's a tough pill to swallow. That's a, that's a tough position for us to be in. Um, and interestingly enough, now, uh, did anybody actually come out and say that in so many words or was it just sort of, you could kind of, yes, between no, the lines? that's, that's basically, so, um, Saucony went as far to say, is like, you know, you're probably right. But uh, <laughs> we're not ready to go there. We'll we'll slowly get there in fifteen to twenty years. Is is what they said. 
Um, and if you've watched Saucony over the years, you know that, you know, uh, back at this moment in time, all Saucony shoes had, you know, 12 plus millimeters of drop from heel to forefoot. Um, and then they started experimenting with shoes with lower um, heel to toe drops. And then they eventually changed their entire line to be eight millimeter at the highest. Um, and so now most of the Saucony shoes are either four millimeters or eight millimeters. And they've made um, previously some like, you know, barefoot style shoes without really a lot of cushioning that were that were zero millimeters as well. And um, so you can see they're kind of making good on their promise. They're slowly working their way, um, you know, and working their customer base down, uh, which from a business standpoint makes a lot of sense for them. Um, you know, they're taking a very risk-free approach and, you know, they'll, they'll do the right thing. It'll just take them 20 years to get there is basically what, what they told us and, and what they're following through with doing right now, which I, I find fascinating, but you kind of see the industry as a whole starting to, to move this way as well. Um, you know, when I was first doing this, every shoe, virtually every single shoe on the wall was a, was a two to one heel to toe drop. The, the heel was always t exactly twice as high as the forefoot. And now, you know, you've got a huge percentage of shoes where that isn't the case anymore. Um, you know, people aren't aren't making cushioned zero drop shoes like we are, but they're slowly, um, slowly working their way towards us, which is is fun. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. No, I love your shoes. Um, it so everybody said no, and then what? You, what was the next? step for you obviously you ended up getting them made or or starting yeah. a company but i know that you guys have been purchased or I, maybe you can explain the exact details of but you ultra is owned by icon fitness which is a big fitness equipment company mm -hmm. um so did you actually start it on your own and then they acquired you or how did you yeah. get hooked up with them yeah so what happened is um really it kind of came down to my cousin jeremy uh, he hadn't run in about five years and he, he heard about what I was doing. It was my birthday. I remember it really vividly. And he's like, well, you know, let me try it. And so we ended up going for a run and he wears the modified shoes and I wear a normal pair of shoes and we run out a mile and a half on the trail. And he's like, my gosh, like I can totally tell I run differently and my knee doesn't, my knees don't hurt as bad. And I was like, well, switch back. You give me the modified, you know, zero drop shoes and, and you wear you know these regular traditional running shoes on the way back and by the time we get back he's hobbling he's just like my knees are killing me this is crazy so he's like completely bought in right and he's like well can you make me a pair so i'm like yeah so i, I make him a pair and then he, he calls back later you know a couple weeks later and he's like i want a real pair and i'm like what do you mean a real pair and he's like well I want a pair, you know, not made by you, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like, like made by a real shoe company. And I'm like, I'm modifying them because no real shoe companies, um, make them. And he's like, bull crap. You mean to tell me that nobody makes shoes shaped like feet and nobody makes shoes that have the same level of cushioning from heel to forefoot. Like that's, that's not possible. And I'm like, I, I don't know. I just managed a running store. What would I know? And he's like, well, I'll find them. So he searches the internet and, and comes back and he's like, you're right. Nobody makes them. That's crazy. I'm like, yeah, I know. And so he's like, well, let's just make them. And I'm like, yeah, let's just make them. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I've been thinking about this for about a year now. And um, can you name any shoe companies besides the big seven that have ever broke into the big seven? 
in the history of running shoes, and you know, he obviously didn't know running shoes as well as I, but you know, the answer was no. And I was like, nobody's done it. Like it's suicide. Um, but I, I agree with you. We kind of have to do it because I can't get any of these, you know, major shoe companies to actually take the idea and, and build shoes for us. And I mean, even at the store, we were like, we'll buy, you know, we'll buy two thousand, three thousand pair. We'll, you know, we'll we'll put the money up front if you'll just build them. Um, but since we had no takers, this had been mulling around in my brain for the better part of a year, which was like, I'm going to have to do this myself. And so Jeremy says to me, okay, you just worry about building shoes. I'll find all the connections. I'll do all the other work. I'll do everything else. And I was like, okay, sounds good. You do everything else. Um, you know, but we got to find people to make shoes. He's like, I'll find people to make shoes. And I'm like, okay, whatever. <laughs> so, so we agree to do this and, and I'm, I just really think like nothing of it, but long story short, he finds a guy who finds these guys and, um, we meet with this first guy at outdoor retailer and he's like, yeah. And he was a footwear executive and I can't tell you what company he worked for, but, um, he's like, this is like a $19 million idea. And I was like, 19, not like 16 or 20, 19. He's like, yeah, I think it's 19. <laughs> it's a pretty specific like, number. <laughs> yeah. Pretty specific. Right. I'm like, okay, cool. Um, don't care. Just want to make you know, shoes to sell at my store. And he's like, well, I know these guys. And these guys happen to have just left Adidas and Nike. And this is like the head of CAD at Adidas. He's like the pioneer of doing CAD work in the shoe industry, the VP of development at Adidas. And then, um, the Nike's last maker, the head of the kitchen and, uh, which is like their advanced concepts team. And then, um, the, the head of Nike University. So like the dude that has everyone that's making shoes at Nike right now, most of them were taught how to do so by this guy. So these guys had left Nike and Adidas and formed their own, um, uh, advanced like prototyping, uh, company basically. And they, they had been wanting to do something really similar. Um, cause they, they knew the research and they knew the way shoes were supposed to build, be built. And so they first called me up. And so when they called my first thought, is like, Oh crap, finally getting sued, you know, <laughs> because like you think <laughs> like we've been modifying these shoes for all this time. Surely, you know, somebody's going to be pissed that we're, you know, cutting the technology out of the back half of the shoe and, and messing with the shoe and, and uh, they're like, no, it's cool. I'm like, oh, it is? They're like, yeah, we left those companies. We're not with them anymore. Um, and we want to do the same thing you want to do. And I'm like, well, why are you calling me? And they said, well, we're just old guys who know how to build shoes. We don't really have a marketing story. Your story is perfect with your, you know, uh, world best marathon as a kid and, you know, your all-American cross-country running and and you're running store and modifying these shoes in the store and all this stuff. Like it's a perfect marketing story. And so let's get together. And I'm like, okay, let's do it. And so, you know, it was like a week or two later, me and Jeremy and this uh, kid that worked with me at the store, Jacob, we, we took this road trip up to, uh, to the Vancouver, Washington, Portland area and met with these guys. And it was kind of like off of the races from there. We, we sat down with them, you know, we talked about what we needed to do and, uh, you know, we, we talked business plans and went through everything and, you know, they knew the internal side of the footwear business. I knew the retail side of the footwear business. And we thought between those two, you know, two things, we had a, a pretty good chance to succeed and, and not get toasted like everybody else had in the past. 
And so we decided to go for it. And the kind of the first step is making the last. And the last is the form that the shoe is built around. And um, so we had talked about the research and what needed to be done. You know, almost universally, all chronic foot problems come from shoes, both raising the heel and then, and then crowding the toes in shoes. Because shoes are not shaped like feet, there's a foot-shoe conflict. And your bunions, your neuromas, your metatarsalgia, you know, your plantar fasciosis, all this stuff basically is caused by shoes. We don't see it in places where people don't wear modern footwear. Um, and so we're having this discussion and we start, you know, talking about making the last and we basically decide that the only way to functionally do it right is you have to get people who have healthy feet that have no foot problems and you have to trace their feet, um, while they're wearing socks because most people wear socks when they wear shoes. And so I go back home and I start tracing feet, you know, of, of people who have healthy shaped feet that never have any foot problems. And we come back and we, we build this last, um, which again is the form that the shoe is built around. And, and we get our first prototype back and, uh, we bring our first investor, um, with us, um, who's Joe Morton, who started this company Zango, if you've heard of it, but, um, and we, we go meet with these guys and, and they're looking at the shoe and they're like, we just can't risk our life savings on this. <laughs> and we're like, well, what's the deal? They're like, well, it, like no one will buy that. <laughs> it does. <laughs> you know? It definitely looks different. I mean, I know. It's a different look at first, right? I get, I get some comments on my one I'm wearing them or at least, and not necessarily bad, but you know, people notice it because it is, it's so wide at the front compared to what a normal running shoe looks yeah, like. It's so shaped like a foot, you know, and so, which is crazy, right? <laughs> yeah, it was a stupid idea, you know. <laughs> so, or maybe it's stupid that shoes weren't this way all along, but yeah. So these guys are like, it's just like we just don't think people will buy it. It just looks too crazy. And I'm like, well, is there any other way to functionally build the shoe properly so it doesn't, you know, cause these injuries and and chronic foot conditions? And they're like, no, like this is the only way it can be done. And luckily, my investor was smart enough to say, hey, if, if you guys are nervous about this, um, we believe in it. We'll pay you your going rate to do the work to, to take us through development and factories and everything. Um, and you don't have to risk your life savings. Obviously, you're not going to have ownership stake in the company, but you know, we'll pay you to, to help us along the way and do the work and, and develop these shoes and everything. And they, they took it. So they didn't end up having the ownership in the company, which is crazy. Um, but they were 100% behind the idea. They were just worried, like, they actually got looking at the data that, you know, no running shoe company had ever broken in. Like, it's just never happened in history. And so they were looking at that as well. So it was kind of a combination of that and, whoa, that looks really, really different. But basically, we, we went down that path and uh, we racked up a, a ton of debt in the process and uh, we ordered our first shipment of shoes I actually went and lived in the factory in China for a month uh, just working on development and uh, taking care of all the issues to get the shoes produced um, I was we we were like hell-bent on on uh, building anywhere but China um, but it turns out any running shoe that's technical and costs more than a hundred bucks is is probably you know built really close to Hong Kong. There's just a certain like place where there's actually the mines um, and the training and the uh, materials and the technical know-how to do it. 
Yeah. And so, well, it's like um, the bike so, industry. Yeah, they don't say they they make a big deal of made in America or whatever. But I mean, it's between Taiwan and China. That's where the expertise is for so much of it. Mm-hmm. It's just the way it is. Yeah. Well, and I mean, bikes are fixed objects too. You know, they're they're hard. Um, they're hard. You know, they're not uh, a flowing, moving object. They don't move with the body per se, and that that makes this even more so. Um, you know, this is a soft good rather than hard good. You know, sh- shoes are attached to the body and, and and move with it, and it brings a whole new set of challenges. But it is similar to bikes in that you know the expertise is basically all in one place. Um, so I was really uncomfortable with with building over there, but luckily we had a really good um, you know just this uh, older Christian guy who was our liaison to the factories, and he's like, I know you don't want to build in China, but there's nowhere else that can build what you want to build at the quality you want to build it at and i promise i'll get you in a place that um aligns with your morals and your ethics and your values and so um so he did this and then i ended up going over there and ended up staying a month because my thought process was like well they can pull the wool over my eyes for a week but but not a month and so uh, I'm there and it was really cool. You know, you find out China's just like America. You can get crap or you can get gold depending on what you pay for and, and where your ethics lay. And, um, and this place was awesome. You know, I, I ate with the factory workers most days. Um, I was with them, you know, uh, 10 to 14 hours a day. Most of the time, uh, we were, I was very comfortable there as an American, um, it's not the whole sweatshop thing you hear about at all. You know, we, we could have been in America for all intents and purposes. Um, and, you know, we were in a factory where this was a place people aspired to work. It was, it was kind of like this is where people want jobs at uh, because it's, it's a nice place to uh, – or one of the nicest places to, uh, to build shoes. What and year so, was this? This would have been, uh, when I was in the factory, this would have been 2010. Okay. So, so I want to back up for just a second. So you, you found, or your cousin managed to find the guy that you met at Outdoor Retailer, and then that guy introduced you to the design team of folks that had left Nike and Adidas. Yep. And then um, were one of one or some of those people the potential investors, or was there a, an outside other people that were looking to invest that ultimately bailed on it? Um, so no, they, they're the ones who, who bailed. Um, but our initial investor, uh, who I mentioned earlier, uh, Joe Morton, we actually got him before, um, I think before we had ever, you know, talked about this with these guys. So we basically went to Joe and I, I showed him what we'd been doing at our store and it was, you know, it was kind of a sham show because we didn't even have a drawing of a shoe. So it's amazing. But we, we basically showed up and said, Hey, you know, we, we basically, you know, get the toes to spread out and, um, we, we get the heel level with the forefoot and we weight balance the shoe front to back and people run better and they get injured less. And here's the data. And we want to make shoes this way because none of the major shoe companies will do it. So he and put he, up some of that initial, like whatever yes. the startup capital was. Yeah. So basically he like looks at it and he's like, well, let me get back to you tomorrow. My wife and I need to discuss it. And, <laughs> and the next day he calls up, he's like, I'll give you your first quarter million. 
and we're like, what? <laughs> like, all right. And, and so business, you know? how far did that take you? Like, what was the, I mean, share what you can with numbers, but you know, the design team, I'm guessing they kind of created the renderings and the, the technical drawings that you needed to produce a shoe. Like what were the costs involved to get to the point where you could go to China and say, okay, make this. So that quarter million got us close to that point. So it got us through the initial development of building a last and doing 3D modeling and uh, building sample shoes like prototypes in, uh, you know, uh, this guy Vlad has a, actually has a, uh, a, a little mini shoe factory in his garage um, and um, all that stuff. So we the, that first quarter million basically got us through all most of the initial development of the first pair of shoes. How many um, prototypes did you guys go through? Oh gosh. <laughs> I don't know. It's more than I care to remember. All right. I mean like so, tens or like hundreds? Uh probably hundreds. Wow. Uh by the time we you know got the initial because uh, we were developing basically we, first shoe is the instinct and then right after that we were developing the Adam and Eve and the Lone Peak as well um, and between those three shoes we probably did hundreds of prototypes um, by the time those suckers all made it to market so so did yeah. you I mean that's kind of an expensive way to start to go with multiple models did you think maybe we should just start with one and see what happens or did you always or did you quickly want to launch with multiples well, I already knew it worked, you know, right. so it wasn't like, let's launch one and see if it works. It's like, well, we already know it works. You know, it's just a matter of like if it will sell. And so we really thought like, okay, we need to attack. Um, you know, my thought process was, is we need to attack different markets. So we'll make a, a road running shoe, which was the first shoe we built, which was the instinct. Um, and then uh, minimalism got really big right in this like time period while I was doing this and, and barefoot style shoes were popular and the five fingers actually got really popular. Um, you know, later on. And so we basically built a, a five finger without the five fingers, you know, it was a, a foot shaped, you know, very uh, minimalist shoe. It basically looked like a pair of Ebrams without, without the individual toe pockets. It was a mitten rather than a foot glove. Hmm. Um, and, <laughs> um, and so we threw that out there as well. And then the other one was, and also cause we just really believed in, you know, doing that to strengthen your feet and work on your form. It was a good complement to what we were doing. And then also a trail running shoot. And, you know, part of this is, is, uh, selfishly motivated as well. You know, um, we ended up adding my buddy, Brian, uh, Beckstead, um, who kind of runs the day, day to day of the company now. Um, and we added him because he had these hamstring issues, got him a pair of shoes and, you know, the, the shoes basically, let you land more underneath your center of gravity or, or closer to it underneath your knee. And therefore you activate your hamstring less when you don't land with your heel out in front of your body. And so this happens for him and he's like, wow, that, that totally helped. You know, I want to be a part of this. So, um, we bring him on board and, um, I just totally forgot where I was going with that. What was your question? <laughs> I think the the third one that you introduced at the time was the, the Lone Peak, right? Oh, yeah. So him and I are both training for mountain 50 milers and, and him for a 100 miler. And so, um, so, yeah, Lone Peak, a trail shoe has to be a part of the equation as well. 
And so we did lead off with the instinct and it ended up hitting the market about six months before the other two did. Um, but you know, we really felt strongly we had to hit trail road and, and minimalism all at once. And between the, the three, you know, we would find some success. And, and so, so the quarter million got you to the point where you were ready to go to production. You got these three different models developed. Where did you get the capital to actually produce them? Um, so a quarter million basically got the prototyping done. And then we, we needed more money before we were ready for production and, and me living in China and all that. So, so Joe actually kicked um, more money in. And then uh, we went to production and we ordered the first batch of shoes. And how many shoes was that, like per model? So it was about the first. Uh, the first run was instinct and intuition. Um, so men's and women's road shoes. And uh, the first order was 2,500 pair, which is the smallest uh, the factory would make. And that ran us. I think that ran us about another quarter, a little more than another quarter million. Um, and then of course, tooling costs are really high is the other thing people don't think about is, uh, you know, just to build like the outsole, the molds for the outsole, the midsole and the insole, you're looking at about hundred, 150 grand, depending on, uh, the specs. Cause you need um, one for every size shoe you're going to do. Right? right. And so that's before you have to spend that hundred to 150 grand before you've ever built even your first shoe. Um, and when you're a brand new company like us, you know, the factory wants that money up front because they don't know if you're actually going right. to sell these shoes. So um, initially, you know, all this money was basically uh, my life savings, Jeremy's life savings, Brian's life savings. You know, some of us had more than others. And then uh, loans from, you know, like Brian got a loan from his parents. Um, I couldn't get my parents involved because they uh, own a running store and have to stay impartial. Um, but you kind of get an idea of we're just kind of grabbing money from everywhere. And then whatever, wherever we came up short, Joe always kicked in. And, uh, so it kind of got to the point we ordered this first batch of shoes and they were producing them and we had been working back and forth, uh, with, um, Jim Herman, um, who was, uh, you know, he was on the 1984 national championship BYU football team and he was best friends with Steve Young and so he was trying to get Steve Young to uh you know invest in our shoes and he worked for this company Icon Health and Fitness and the CEO of Icon was uh running and he'd started running in five fingers and he's in a car with Jim and he says to Jim you know I really like these five fingers and, and they seem to, you know, really help the way I run, but I really wish they had cushioning and, and I wish my toes could still spread, but not be forced apart by these stupid toe pockets. And Jim had just met with us like the day before. And he was like, um, I kind of know these guys and they pretty much build exactly that. <laughs> and so they ended up calling us on the spot and we started meeting with these guys and meetings went back and forth for nine months and right before the shoes landed in America, we were going to ship them and put them either at my running store or in Brian's garage. <laughs> um, right before they landed in America, we, we signed this deal with Icon, which is basically they, they would acquire us, for lack of a better term, and, um, and pay off our you know, like million-ish dollars of, of debt that we were in the process of uh, racking up. 
and uh, and for us, like the whole thing was like never to make money. It was never about that. Um, it was always about just like helping as many people as possible and and getting people to run better and run injury free. And so for me, it was like, okay, you know, if we do this deal, we're we're never going to make a ton of money off this thing, but we have a chance to really like make it really big, really fast, because um, we have some serious like money and and uh, like muscle behind us, especially on the like uh, logistical side of things as well. And we won't have to worry and be distracted by raising capital and logistical issues and you know import stuff and credit and all this crazy stuff. And so we did the deal right, you know, just a couple of weeks before the shoes landed. So we actually redirected the shoes mid shipment um, to the uh, Icon Warehouse in California, and and that's how we got to, you know, basically, you know, shoes hit the market. We already had orders; the shoes were already sold, basically. So the, they just ended up shipping out of a real warehouse instead of out of, you know. Our, one of our garages. <laughs> so it seems like kind of a, a low risk proposition for Icon then at that point. Um, yeah, I mean, for low ish. <laughs> yeah, a million dollars with a ton of upside. Um, you know, I, I, I'd say so. You know, I think a businessman would look at it and say we, that, you know, we got taken to the cleaners um, and it was a, a pretty good deal for Icon. But, you know, hindsight is 2020 there. So, right. Um, and for us, again, it, it wasn't about business and it wasn't about making money. It was, it was about getting these shoes that I truly believe help people, um, you know, move better and, and become more injury free on as many feet as possible, as fast as possible. And a lot of the motivation at the time too was like, we knew the data was so strong that, you know, we thought surely a big shoe company would copy us and try and put us out of business really fast. Yeah, I, w- I want to ask you about that in a, in a second because I'm curious how you protect your design now. But before we get to that, so the, the deal structure then, is it um, – now, do you still have some ownership of the brand or wh- where did you guys end up? Um, Icon's a private company, so I, I legally can't actually even talk about that. Okay. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, we're, we're good. It's, uh, you know, if, if the – I'll say it this way. If the company makes money, I make some money. How's that? That sounds good. That's about what I can say. Yeah. Now, and again, hindsight being 2020, is it, would you have structured it very much differently if you had to do it again today knowing what you know, or are you pretty happy with how it turned out? Um, I'd say I'm pretty happy with how it turned out, um, but to say I didn't learn anything in the process and want to do anything different is crazy. What are like, what are maybe some of the things you learned? Like, like for instance, if somebody were in your position now and a big company offers to either, you know, erase their debt or buy them out, however, however it benefits them at the time, like what are some of the things that people should think about in that situation? So, uh, I get this question from a lot of those very people. Um, you know, people will say like, Hey, you know, we saw what you did and we're starting this company and you know, we, we want your advice. And, and I always ask them, well, what are your goals? You know, if your goal is to make money, um, you know, make a lot of money, then don't sell your company. Um, but you also have a lot, um, you know, it depends on how much you believe in yourself and how much you know you can be successful. If you absolutely hundred percent believe in yourself and know what the roadblocks blocks are and know you can get around them and know you can be successful. Don't sell your company. Um, if making money is your primary objective, but if you want to get your product 
out there to as wide of an audience as possible, as fast as possible, and you don't really care about making money, and you, you're truly more just concerned about you know helping as many people as possible, then you know you might look at bringing investors in and and letting them you know have as much share as is necessary to make that happen. Um, so it really, to me, just depends on what people are trying to accomplish. Um, so I don't know if that answered the question. Yeah, but, no, that's uh, a good, it's a good yeah. answer. Um, okay, so now let's get to the product design. So you've got this zero drop, which is a trademarked thing for you, foot shape, trademark thing from you guys. How do you protect that design from anybody else copying it, or can you? So I kind of hesitate to say this out loud, but footwear <laughs> patents are, are basically, you know, they're very close to useless as far as protecting you goes. Um, and that's, that's another reason that we did do the acquisition deal with Icon is because we were told over and over by the, our friends that had come over from Nike and Adidas um, that, uh, that no matter how many patents uh, Nike or Adidas had on something, it was, it was basically unprotectable because the footwear patent laws just say that if you change something 10%, it's not a conflict and, and therefore um, you know, it can't be protected. So for example, Vibram had, I believe, 73 patents surrounding five fingers um, and they still had a, just a very difficult time uh, protecting five fingers. There were lots of rip-off five fingers out there. Fila did their four-toed version, which was considered absolutely no patent infringement whatsoever, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, so they had told us basically up front from the get-go, which was actually part of our motivation to, to really grow the company quickly, was that you, know, you can't protect it, basically, at the end of the day. So. Okay. So now the most recent introduction for you guys is the King, which is uh, OCR, the obstacle course racing kind of themed shoe. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, when you develop something like that, a couple of questions. Like, how do you select the athletes to test that? Um, how do you determine which new market segments to go into? Um, you know, for us, it's we're, we're probably – not uh, very traditional in that respect. I think I think most companies and, and even our you know um, our you know managers and friends up at Icon, you know the way they usually look at things is like okay the market is this big you know let's go after that market. And I I kind of like to think we take a little bit more of the uh, Aura Brush approach, which is if you've heard about those guys they they make this you know tongue brush that basically cleans your tongue and freshens your breath, <laughs> and there's no market for it. Um, but they're like, well, you know, the market's tiny, but if we owned hundred percent of the market, then, uh, you know, what would that be? And so we kind of look at things a little bit more from that side of things, which is like, okay, we don't really care what the market size is. We care like, you know, can we bring the benefits of foot shaped and zero drop to a population that will love it? Um, and do we have customers, you know, on the other side is always the obvious one, which is, do you have customers clamoring for it? Um, and in this case, the King actually started as a um, shoe in response to um, uh, Europe and England fell running, um, hmm. where the ground is just really soft and um, you need really big lugs to deal with it. Um, and then along the way, you know, we thought, okay, we gotta we gotta find ways to sell this shoe in more places than just um, uh, the Northeast and the Northwest U.S. 
um, as, as in addition to Europe and England. And so uh, I, along the way, some of our athletes, including me, got into obstacle course racing and, and doing Spartan races and stuff. And so, you know, we realized that the uh, the crossover is basically almost 100%. That you use the same type of shoe for you know fell running as you would for obstacle course racing, if you can make the rubber grippy enough. And so that's how we ended up with Vibram Mega Grip on the King, which probably isn't necessary for a um, a fell running shoe or a shoe for just running in the in the mud and the muck in in the northwest or the northeast. Um, but you add the mega grip to the shoe and all of a sudden, you know, it grips better when it's wet and it grips on walls and um, it grips in basically every condition in every temperature. And so we add that to, you know, to the shoe and put this, uh, you know, strap on top of the shoe. For those that haven't seen it, this, this is a $140 shoe with a Velcro strap on it. <laughs> um, but the idea is, you know, fell running is basically straight up, straight down. You run to the top of a mountain and you turn around and you run down. And a lot of guys like to keep their shoe fairly loose on the climb and they like it fairly tight on the top, but nobody wants to stop and retie their shoes mid-race. And so we have this Velcro strap to the shoe so you can keep the shoe loose for the entire climb, get to the top, boom, in half a second, you know, take the, the Velcro strap, tighten it down and then, and then bomb down the mountain back to the finish that's funny i was uh, thinking you guys put it there just to keep your shoe from getting sucked off in the mud at like a spartan race see and the, these are the kinds of like it's amazing the um the crossover between fell running and an obstacle course racing how a lot of the features don't serve the exact same purpose but they serve each other well and so there's so much good crossover here um, and so, yeah, you're not the first to say that. And obviously we certainly thought of that along the way, you know, you, you got the strap on there. We're like, okay, that's, that's going to be good for, you know, not having your shoe get sucked off in the mud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what's next on the product roadmap for you guys? Um, so right now the, uh, the IQ shoe is just coming out and, um, you know, that's, that's going to be a thing that we evolve. But for those that don't know IQ, IQ is basically, um, we take everything that Ultra is about, which is helping people to learn how to run in a way to protect their bodies um, and and be more injury free. And we put it into a shoe. You know, there's uh, full length sensors, multiple sensors in each shoe that uh, sense the way you land. And um, so your foot strike, your cadence, your impact rate, um, your your ground contact time. And then, you know, left foot to right foot on, on those as well. And um, basically what it does is it senses when you, if, if you're off, so let's say you're a beginning runner um, or you've never had any, you know, technique coaching on how to, how to run efficiently and protect your body, you know, it's going to sense that you're not running in such a way. And then uh, based on what you're doing, it's going to give you a tip or a cue um, to correct that and run better. And so, you know, if, if you're looking at a new runner, you know, those tips are going to be coming, you know, from the very beginning of the run and as often as you want them to come. I think we have a default set to uh, every 10 minutes right now. And that's, every five minutes. that data is showing up on a smartphone app, right? It is. Um, and it, it comes through audio as well. So basically it'll say, you know, for example, you'll hear this. Um, it'll it'll you know beep and then it'll say it it looks like you're overstriding you know um or landing too harshly on your heels um try this tip to overcome it 
keep your elbows behind your hips, you know, pump back and only recover forward. Hmm. So these would be the, you know, the types of cues that we get that, um, you know, we know are proven to, um, you know, fix and uh, help people improve their technique. Now, you guys so showed this system last summer. I mean, I remember seeing yeah. it at uh, press camp. So it's taken yep. this long and it, to just come out? It's been five years in development Holy now. So we, we actually started working on it. I think we'd only had shoes on the market a few months when we started on this. So it's actually probably nearing six years as a project, and, and the shoes just launched. What were you some know, of the hurdles? Why did it take so long? Um. You know, there's just so many moving parts, and you're you're talking multiple sensors in each shoes. Um, trying to get the battery to work properly was was a huge part of it. You know, um, and uh, not having the shoe uh, like disconnect because you're running on top of the sensor and the battery housing. <laughs> you know, you're you're pounding hundreds of miles on it. Uh, so last year we actually thought we had it ready, and what happened is the you know, uh, a, a certain percentage of the shoes, all the shoes worked great fresh out of the box, but a certain percentage after about 50 miles of running, um, you would basically, uh, you know, jar the sensor a little bit out of place or, um, as the foam started to break down, um, it would mess with the battery housing as well. So we'd get disconnect issues. Um, and this was only after running like 50 plus miles on the shoe. And so, that was a big setback because we actually had started to go to production um, and we had built, you know, a bunch of these shoes and, you know, out of the box, they all worked. Um, but then, you know, you have a, a percentage of shoes that 50 miles down the road just start conking out. And so we had to go in and find a way to reinforce all the sensors and um, reinforce the, the battery um, housing and, and the, uh, you know, transmitter and stuff. And so those were probably the biggest hurdles, um, you know, from a manufacturing standpoint. But, you know, if you look at, you know, go back five years, just trying to figure out how to, you know, put a sensor in a shoe with a microchip and have it communicate by Bluetooth and, and how it's going to work with your phone and then how you're going to get, you know, all this stuff to, to work. So there's really an experience of um, you have a coach with you on your run that gives you the needed feedback you need when you need it most. And did you guys, to, sorry, did you guys have to change like the transmitter technology? Because I think like five or six years ago, we were probably on a different version of Bluetooth, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, um, that just keeps, that has, you know, just evolved and evolved as, as time has gone on. So, um, yeah, we did have to, to switch up um uh, the transmitter situation and, and, you know, we do have, uh, different Bluetooth now than we had back then for sure. So, so again, hindsight, like, what do you think you could have done to speed up the development process for something like this? Uh, probably nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We had like a bajillion people working on, uh, add more people maybe. Um, I, I honestly don't know if we really could have in any way. It's just nobody'd ever done it before, so it's like it's like NASA, you know. It's just like okay, we think <laughs> we think this will work. Let's try it. Oh, that didn't work. Okay, try again. 
uh, we'll design it this way. No, that didn't work. Okay, try a new, try a new, you know, design, just yeah. over and over and over till we till we got it right. So yeah. when you're when you're pioneering, sometimes it, it's just time consuming. Ask yeah. ask Elon Musk. Right. So, <laughs> so let, let's talk marketing a little bit because you know you do have something very different, and you know, I, like I I know in my experience, I've probably talked several people into buying your shoes because they see it, they notice it, and I start telling them why I'm wearing it, but. I, I can't remember if I told you or not. The reason why I got my first pair, and this is long before I met any of you guys, was one of my son's friends came over. You know, he was probably 10 years old at the time. And I was looking at his shoes. He had a pair of Ultras. And I'm like, damn, that, you know, the shape of that looks really good. I like that. And so I started looking at him. I ended up getting a pair. <laughs> but, um, so you know, from what every day. <laughs> yeah, from what from what I've seen is it's it's a lot of word of mouth. But I'm so actually two questions is because I I don't know that you guys do kids shoes anymore, or it seems like it's been kind of an on again off again segment for you. So what's up with kids shoes, and how do you guys market your product? Okay, so kids shoes uh, we initially had released an instinct and intuition uh, kids shoe, and um, we it, it was you know fairly successful, uh, but then we built the one and we felt that the one was a better match for kids and and so did our our friends in uh, Norway, and um, we're like a really big deal in Norway and so <laughs> apparently, and uh, so the Norwegians came to us and said you know we want the one in a kid's shoe, and we'll place an order for you know several thousand pair and we're like well that basically finances the tooling so yes we'll do it and so at that point in time we were already trying to figure out what to do next with kids shoes so that made it really easy so we just phased out the instinct and intuition for kids and and replaced it with the one and there was a you know a couple months gap there between the two um and the one junior has been you know far more successful than the initial instinct was and it's it's doing really well and it's a it's a really great kids shoe um and we're going to add um you know another kids model or two here um next year so so that's kids. Um, when it comes to marketing, uh, I am a strong believer, and at the risk of offending my marketing team and, and Chris and everybody else wonderful there, um, I'm a strong believer that that uh, you know this brand is built on the backs of just what you said. It's word of mouth. It's uh, you know it's it's probably not a whole lot different than it was when I was modifying shoes, where it was basically we sold modified shoes on word of mouth from one injured runner to another. Um, and I think it's not a whole lot different now. And I tell people all the time, like, you know, without you spreading the word, um, you know, it, the us running TV ads and runners world ads and all this stuff is great and all, but it's, it's kind of worthless without, you know, people spreading the word and that's what makes things effective and that's what makes things work. So, you know, I like to think, in in most respects we're we're largely a grassroots company and i think we approach you know um marketing from a, a little bit different angle than than most uh brands of our size or bigger do um where most brands kind of tend to target the the middle um and we either go super grassroots or we like go really big or go home with with tv ads um so it's like you know instead of putting a, a ton of money into you know, traditional advertising mediums, we're putting basically all our money into very non-traditional advertising mediums for uh, a footwear company, for an outdoor uh, company, for running shoe company, et cetera. Um, 
And I think it, for us, it's, it's worked because, and it only works because we have something unique and something that's so different than anything else out there. I think if, if we were a me too brand, um, this wouldn't work. Um, but because what we have is so unique and so different, you know, nobody else is making fully cushioned zero drop foot shaped shoes. And so we can come in and say, okay, we're going to get that word out uh, through as many grassroots means as possible because that's the most powerful and that gets the most conversions and um, it's easiest. Um, and then we're going to let people know it exists by bigger means, which would be like the TV ads we've historically done. Um, and that way people at least know that it's out there. Um, we know that people largely aren't going to see an ad, whether it's, you know, in outside magazine or, or, you know, triathlon or, or TV or whatever, and just buy a pair of shoes from us because they do look so different. Um, people almost need a, a personal recommendation, um, need the word of a friend to be convinced to, to actually try them or buy them. So what, um, what are the grassroots efforts that you use? So, um, we spend an enormous amount of money on, um, not an enormous amount of money, but a, a lot of, a lot of time and effort and as little money as possible, which is still a lot, um, <laughs> on uh, things like events, um, demo runs. We have a whole uh, tech rep force throughout the country that basically spends all day, every day, just um, you know, going one-on-one -on -one with random people and with uh, shop employees at outdoor stores and running stores. Um, so basically training REI employees and training running store employees and stuff. Um, and then doing demo runs where they just like show up and say, Hey, we've got these shoes to try. Come, you know, I, I like to call it free shoe rentals. You know, I, I was down at uh, Bryce Canyon national park for their winter festival earlier this year. And we just did free shoe rentals, you know, and we just rented out ultras to people who had never seen them before, um, for free. And they could just take the shoes for half a day or a day and, and go experience them and, and, uh, you know, stuff along those lines. And then we do a lot of events, so we'll show up to, um, you know, races of every kind, including, um, you know, one of the ones that uh, Chris, our marketing manager, uh, has done that has turned out to be really successful is um, there's basically this sport of uh, radio-controlled car racing, RC racing, <laughs> um, but it's off-road, and so you have to trail run while controlling your car. Hmm. Um, and... Uh, you know, sounds like a, a small niche, but you know, we're a big deal in that small niche where, <laughs> you know, these guys that, uh, chase after their cars, trail running through this, you know, dirt course, um, controlling their cars, you know, they know that their, their feet hurt and, and whatever else and they need to take the running part of their, uh, RC racing seriously. And we kind of infiltrated that and have made ourselves a, a presence there. And we do that in, in a lot of, that's just an example of one niche that we penetrated in a unique way by, um, you know, giving, uh, shoes away to, uh, key people. Uh, I do the same thing in the medical community. So we'll, we'll show up, um, to, you know, a lot of these sports medicine gatherings or expos where there's a lot of influential doctors and, uh, and we, we just fit them, give them shoes and, and let them make their judgments from there. So this is the kind of grassroots stuff we do across the board, um, in basically every niche, uh, outdoors been really similar. 
Um, and for, for us as Altra, you know, the outdoor space, the uh, fast packing, backpacking, through hiking space is really our fastest growing segment. And um, it's something that, you know, uh, us, us guys who started the company, we all do that stuff. So we're really happy to, to see that being so successful as well. Cool. From a sales standpoint, how is the changing retail landscape, you know, with so many more people buying stuff online, how's that affecting your ability to get it into stores like REI or independent run shops? Um, you know, it's interesting because uh, I think run shops have always been super stingy about, you know, they, they hate having to bring in a new brand. I mean, I, I managed running stores. Like the, it was like, I loathed bringing in a new brand. You know, it's just like, it's the last thing you want to do because you got to take something you have currently off the wall to put something new on basically. Um, so that, that really, I don't feel like has changed things a whole lot in that dynamic. And, and basically you can find us in almost every running store in the country that has decent credit and pays their bills. Um, <laughs> and, um, and then on the outdoor side, uh, you know, we've been, you know, showing product to REI since year one. And, um, you know, when they finally decided to come on board, um, we ended up having supposedly the most successful launch in the history of REI um, for, for a footwear company. And so we quickly went from five stores to nine stores to 13 to 28 to 46 to now basically all of them 93 and uh, about to go to all of them so um, and that that happened all really really fast and so I think you know with online uh, our strength has been online kind of from the beginning because initially as a small brand you're hard to find um, but if you can develop enough groundswell and then try and push it into retail um, because these shoes are they're different and you almost have to try them on to know how they fit because foot shaped shoes you don't uh, you know the, the same rules of sizing don't apply to foot shaped shoes that would apply to regular tapered um, shoes traditional shoes and so it almost forces people um, into retail when possible and I think you know that's helped us as well. I want to ask you one last question but I kind of want you to answer it in two different ways. The question is, you know, what kind of advice would you give to somebody who wants to start a company like this? And the two different ways are, one is a a consumer products goods brand, you know, somebody who's just going to make something that is actually sold as opposed to like a service or, a, you know, teaching, whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, the other is somebody who wants to enter a segment against giants you know like nike and adidas and do something so different like how do you how do you break into that in that way so my initial thoughts your initial question was be prepared to go to hell and back 50 times um because in my experience that's exactly what happened we were you know it was horrific and i was we were on the brink of extinction you know more times than i can count um and it's really, really, really hard. So I think, you know, the, the first part of your question there, I think you have to be really passionate about what you're doing. You have to have a product that is truly different and you have to really, really, really believe in it. Um, because I know if we didn't truly believe our product was better and it, and it, it was going to change lives, that there's no way we would have made it. We would have caved, you know, everybody went without jobs and a paycheck for over a year. Um, everybody leveraged basically everything they own to, to get into this. Um, 
And so, um, you know, to me, those are the three keys. You gotta have passion for what you're doing. You gotta love what you're doing. You have, you have to have a ton of knowledge about the, the subject as well. Um, and hopefully some background, you gotta be prepared to go to hell and back. You gotta be prepared to work 80 hours a week for the first, you know, few years, I think for a lot of people in most, in a lot of situations. And then you have to really truly believe in your product. Um, so I think that's my, most of my answer to the first part of your question. And then the second is, uh, how do you, you know, find a place among the giants, right? Um, is that, is that correct? Yes. Um, so I, I think the answer to that is actually really similar to the first. Um, you, you can't compromise um, what you're doing because you think people might not accept it. Um, the, you know, a big, I think one of the biggest things that happened in our company was the opposition to, you know, when we first built the shoes and they looked really different. Um, you know, there was this kind of movement to, okay, let's not do the foot-shaped toe box thing. And then the, the question of like, well, is it, is it functionally the right thing to do? And is there any other way to do it? Well, yes, it's functionally the right thing to do. And no, there's no other way to truly do it without making it look like that. And um, so we chose function over fashion. And um, I think that was just a, you know, an example of, of one of many times that we've chosen to put, um, put the product first and put like the end user first and put people first. And um, I think that's really, if you're going to find a place um, among these giant companies, um, that's what you have to do. You have to realize that they can't, in a lot of ways, they can't change what they're doing and they can't do that because they have a big board and they're, they're really tied um, to their profits. Um, and so you have to come in and do something that uh, is, is different and being truly different and sticking to your guns regardless of what the opposition is and like, you know, sticking with what's right regardless of whether people think it's going to sell or not. You know, I'm, I'm a big differentiator die guy. Um, you know, Joe Morton, our first, uh, investor gave me this book called differentiator die. And I've, I've kind of chosen to live by that phrase, uh, as we go about things, you know, I don't, I don't choose to look at competitor product. Um, I choose to do things that, you know, we think are functionally right, regardless of, of how it's traditionally been done. And across the board, you know, from uh, marketing to manufacturing, you know, our factories will look at us and say, like, we've never done that before. That's not how you build shoes. And we say, well, that's how we're going to build shoes. And they're like, well, we don't know how to do that. And we're like, well, let's figure it out together. Um, and I think that kind of attitude and approach has to um, be there if you're going to, you know, be the, you know, David going up against Goliath. You have to be willing to do those kinds of things and, and stick to your guns and stay true to your, um, you know, s- stay true to what's different about you and what you're trying to do. Yeah. So. Cool. Well, that, sorry, but it made me think of another kind of a, an analogy to that, you know, it's like they say you know, a ski boat's going to turn a lot quicker than a carrier. So, you know, the smaller guys yeah. can pivot on these trends. And what, what the example I'm thinking of is like the obstacle course racing shoes, you know, Reebok kind of owned that for a long time. And it just, it really baffled my mind that nobody else came up with a, 
OCR shoe for years. And then, um, yeah, there were some fell running shoes from like Solomon and stuff, but they didn't, they didn't drain like the way they were made, they would hold water in. And so, um, you know, I tried the Reebok one. I tried, geez, another brand that's totally escaping me. And then, yeah, innovate. And then, which the traction was great, but man, they were like slogging around in, in buckets because they just didn't drain. And then I tried the superior that you guys make for one. And it was perfect. Like they're, the lugs weren't as deep, but they drained and they were so much more comfortable because the Reebok ones are so narrow. So it just made me think, it's like you guys can afford to take a risk on a, a low volume category, whereas, you know, Nike and Adidas, for them, it's like, well, I, I might sell a couple thousand shoes. It's not even worth it. But yeah. for you guys, uh, that's a whole segment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and on the flip side, you know, it's it's actually a lot more risky for us because if it doesn't pan out, we invested all that money and all that tooling, which to us is a much greater portion of our business. To them, it's a drop in the hat. So yeah, it's true. It kind of goes both ways for sure. Huh. But yeah, cool. absolutely. All right, on, man. All right, so where can people find you guys online? So uh, you can find Altra at altrafootwear.com or altrarunning.com. That's A L T R A. Um, for Ultra, uh, Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram, all uh, we're there. We're active. We we answer. Um, and then you can find me at golden-harper.com. Just a just a kind of hyphen in between my first name and last name. So golden-harper.com. Uh, and I have a bunch of articles on running injuries. And uh, actually, I have a written out version of of the story of how we got started on there um and all kinds of stuff so lots lots of resources there and uh yeah hit hit us up uh, wherever you see fit awesome man well thank you so much for your time it's great talking to you yeah thanks a lot it's been a blast appreciate it my biggest takeaway is to question the status quo If a product works okay, but hasn't changed in years or ever, why is that? Is there a legit reason it stayed the same? Or are there underlying financial or logistical or even marketing reasons things are stagnant? If you can't find any good reason, it could just be that you're onto something, or that no one else is willing or able to risk doing it differently. Test the concept, and if you find there's a market for a different or better product or service, go for it. Golden brings up a few of the financial challenges of doing this. First, investors might be skeptical if your product is so far from the norm, so it's key to find a true believer. And he mentions the trade-offs between selling the company early and accelerating growth, or going it alone and maximizing personal profit potential. That's for you to decide, but it's good to see both sides of the story. Lastly, it's crucial that you believe 110% in what you're doing because it's a long, hard road to launch and build a company, doubly so when you're competing with entrenched giants. Being small and nimble can be a plus, but it also means every decision has a bigger impact on your bottom line. Hey, if you like this, there's plenty more where it came from. So real quick, can you take two seconds and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher? And if you really like it, could you give the Build Cycle podcast a quick rating and review? That really helps me grow this and provide more killer interviews for you. Thanks. Now it's time to get building.